Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover with yours truly, Jarrell Mason, where we get inside the entertainment industry with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. With me right now, I have a man who had his hand in many pots over the years, wherever it be speaking to motivate others, giving a good word at Unity Fellowship Church out in Newark, New Jersey, and he's from Chocolate City, D.C., and BET notarized access granted. His name has been on all our minds for years, and you're going to get to hear his story true, no filter, all real. Mr. Kevin E. Taylor. Mr. Taylor, welcome to Beyond the Album Cover, sir. Thank you, good sir. Pleasure to be here, brother. Pleasure to be here. Yes, sir. I appreciate you taking the time out of your day, Sunday, to do this interview with me. You're welcome. You're welcome indeed. It's honor. I'm honored. Anytime we have a conversation about the culture, about BET, about blackness, about honoring our our journeys, I'm in. So good work you're doing. Thank you. It's for the culture, black star power, and we're giving you a choice. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And also <laughs> be sure to go to Amazon to get that exclusive BT license where I got my BT hoodie. I'll be sure to show you that at the end of the interview so you can see that. So Thank like you. I mentioned at the top of the interview, you are from Chocolate City. So what was that like growing up in Chocolate City during the time of you had the late John Thompson doing his thing with Georgetown? You have Howard University right there and they're celebrating this week as Madam VP Harris takes office and just how growing up in the nation's capital influenced you? It's really interesting because, you know, the later I moved in life to meet people, especially black people who, from, who are from around the world, I realized what a unique experience it was to be from a city where we had a black mayor, much of the city council was black, you know, for the most part, getting a cab wasn't an issue just because the cab drivers were black, you know, um, you, there were, being in the projects even where I grew up down in Southwest by the waterfront, but being able to walk, you know, a few miles, which I did almost every weekend and be at the Capitol, be at the monument, to be at, you know, Air and Space Museum where I spent like more time than it seems even smart than, you know, since I didn't want to be a pilot, it was just getting to the museums and being able to, to, to be at the Smithsonian and see all that history and to see it in the context of this city that had no, you know, that was getting ta you know, taxation without representation that was run by black people. So I, you know, black teachers, I, it, was, it was great to be told I was smart by black people. It was good to be encouraged and poured into by my community. Um, as a matter of fact, you know, we were talking, you and I earlier about why I went to, uh, why, where I went to college and I ended up going to Guilford College because everybody was like, oh man, you ain't you going to Howard? I was like, I'm not taking the bus to college. That's not the experience. And by, by my senior year, we were on Montello Avenue. So yeah, I would have taken one bus over to Georgia Avenue. I was like, yeah, that's not college. And partly as I was going through the, the brochures and all of that stuff after the PSATs and visiting campuses, I went to um, a predominant white institution at the time because I wanted to see if I was black smart or smart, smart, you know? Because black people just kind of pat you on the head and be like, oh, go on and do the thing. And being close to Howard, but not on Howard's campus, I didn't understand at the time the importance of that kind of uh, black voice, that black uh, leadership voice in my head. I understood it at work. I understood it at, you know, because I was already working at a government job by, by, um, by, by 
my junior year in high school, I understood it in life, you know, but I was, it was a 17 year old's life. It wasn't, there was nobody who sat down and said, maybe you should go to Morehouse. Maybe you should, um, because they were just also, you know, overwhelmed by the fact that this boy got a perfect SAT score and was looking at Brown and Cornell and, you know, they were like, ooh, we can go there. And so um, I went to, you know, being, growing up in DC was about culture. You know, it wasn't, you know, I remember, bruh, I remember the mayoral campaign for the first mayor of Washington, DC. Walter, Walter E. Washington. I remember that. I remember Washington for Washington in 1974. He's done a lot for us. He's going to do a lot more. He's got the answer and he's going to tell us all Washington for Washington in 1970. I remember as clear as day. So I will definitely say that it anchored me and gave me the, the balls, if you will, to test, you know, white institutions. Because I didn't go there like, oh, thank you. Thank you so much for letting me be here. I was very kind of in classrooms with white boys and girls, you know, young people. And I was like, oh, that's what y'all think? That's very white of you. And they were like, you can't say that to people. So I just started to call white people Cracker Jack and Cracker Jill. And they were like, what is wrong with you? Why did you come on this campus to be this militant? But it wasn't about that. It was just kind of the accountability to be able to say to people that I come from somewhere, you know? It was very interesting to be on campus my first semester and hear that people were talking about me because I was a rare black boy on campus who wasn't there on an athlete's, uh, athletic scholarship. Then I heard I came from DC. So by the middle of the first semester, bro, I, I heard that I was the son of Ron Dellums or Bill Gray, Senator Ron Dellums, Senator, because that's the only way I could be there. And so they decided it was Ron Dellums because I went to school with Piper. And so somehow somebody must have put, put us in the same location. And that's where it landed. But you know, it anchored me, it challenged me. Being from DC uh, grounded me. You know, you can't, you cannot test me because I'm from DC all day, every day. You, you, I can go anywhere in the world and feel like a, I feel like being from DC, like inside DC and living in a neighborhood that's got the projects here, and then across the street with a glass high rise that senators lived in and you go around to the wharf and you go up through LaFont Plaza, then you right at the Smithsonian. We lived a cultural code shift. We were, we, I lived code switching every day. Mm, and you probably have the mumbo sauce in the bag swag. Now, if you don't Man, know mumbo listen, sauce, listen. listen. When I tell you one of my friends from my birthday this past September, so apparently they selling mumbo sauce on QVC for one of the DC entrepreneurs. And I got a little box for my birthday and it was some, it was two jars of mumbo sauce. Man, I, oh, oh, I, I, I love where I am. I love my life. But I'm telling you, every time I come back to visit, I go to Eddie Leonard's and get 10 chicken wings and some mumbo sauce. Cause. Yeah, cause I ordered. Cause I can't. <laughs> yeah, cause I ordered me some Capital City mumbo sauce, right? Man, listen, that changed my life. Pour that over some fried rice, some chicken wings, but you got to go to an authentic carryout Chinese food spot for those that don't know to get the real deal. And if you messy, get it on the side. Break your chicken up and dip it. You know, I like pouring it, you know, because it's a messy experience. It's supposed to be messy. It's supposed to make you stop, eat and enjoy the food, you know? Mm. Yeah, and also check out Ben's Chili Bowl for their half smokes. Man, stop! Shh, shh. A half smoke with some salt, with some with some chili, uh, two half smokes with some chili on it and some fries. Yeah, don't, don't, don't. Yeah, a and couple years of chili all over it. So again, make sure you sit down somewhere and eat it. it Ben's Chili Bowl ain't no walking, ain't no walking hot dog. 
that ain't what it, that's not what it's built for. No, it is surely is not because my wife and I, we took a trip to D.C. about maybe three years ago. We went to the African-American Smithsonian Museum and we made a stop by bands. So I, I was telling her about the half smokes and how's the tradition in D.C. and how anybody that's everybody, you can miss the politicians, everybody that's in government to the everyday commoner. You all congregate at Ben's Chili Bowl. Uh, yeah, again, that, that, it, 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 U Street, that corridor, you know, you could between that and Republic Gardens that was right up the street, you know, that was that corridor was just because you know the the um what is it now the John Wilson building that's you know that's some DC municipal building so you could run into the mayor council people anybody that's come in town it would right there because you know that that road people don't realize between Howard and Georgia Avenue and and and, and the Reeves Center. At uh, you know, fourteenth and you right there is just kind of a, you know, uh, uh, what is it? Busboys and poets is in there now. It's just rich with 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 culture. And Ben's Chili Bowl has been the anchor of it for for for, for generations. Mm -hmm. Definitely a DC staple. So if you're ever in DC, check out Ben's. Now, can you talk about briefly the impact that the late John Thompson had on not only Georgetown University, but DC, because he was known to be a figure that you didn't want to mess with. And he even told some of the local street pushers, stay away from my players, because he didn't play yeah. that. And, you know, John Thompson was, was just a, I mean, I, I wasn't a college basketball fan, and I knew who John Thompson was. John Thompson was a was a figure on the news. He was in magazines. He was, you know, you see him in the in the in the Evening Star or the Washington Post, you know, or the Washington Times, just because he was just that big a figure. He made his presence known, like you said, you know, like kind of going into the streets to try to distract, you know, young players that had come to him, you know, either locally or from around the country. And he was he was a giant who made sure that the streets knew he would do whatever it took to protect his, you know, his boys. Like, and he said, my boys, he treated them like they were his sons. And if you mess with them, if you threw them off, you were messing with him. And so, you know, John Thompson was, again, you know, I remember magazine articles and newspaper articles that we would keep and, you know, I would read them to my brothers just because we were like, how is this man so important? Why do we know about him when he's a college coach? You know what I mean? It, but he was a very, very, very big deal. You know, there was some, there was some, you know, some some institutions in D.C. and you know, and you know, Chuck Brown, Mayor Marion Barry, John Thompson. Mm -hmm. Now, Chuck Brown, for those of you that don't know, Godfather of Go Go. Now, I'm going to trip you out with this. Where I'm from in North Carolina, Chuck Brown was born in that same area in Northampton County, North Carolina, before he ended up moving to D.C. Oh, okay. Okay, so y'all can own some. So y'all 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 have some y'all have some history in his legacy. Okay. Yeah, a, a little bit, but not as big as DC. But now we're mentioning prior to the interview, both of us went to college in Greensboro. Yourself, Guilford College, World Be Free alum of Guilford. I went to University of North Carolina at Greensboro, and a lot of people from the DMV. For those of you that don't know, that's DC, Maryland, and VA. They would import their go-go music down south because we got a little bit of taste of it because of that like eu rare essence treble funk we can go on and on so can we talk about but you got it because some you know because artists like you know eu ended up having a big hit later in the 80s because of uh spike lee um but you know salt and pepper and a, and a couple of those hip-hop artists really put them on you talk about 
how it got, you know, Go-Go got imported down south. I did my uh, my junior year in London because of Guilford College, and we got to do, we, we, you know, we did uh, a semester abroad. And I was walking down a street in King's Road in London, listening to Go-Go on my, on my Walkman and walking to a store and they were playing Go-Go. They were playing some Trouble Funk. And I was like, what? what? You know, you, I took off my headset and I was like, how do I still hear Go-Go in London? And you know, God was like, mate, you call, oh my God, you from DC, oh my God. And he was like, you got any Go-Go? And I was like, I'm listening to something right now. Bruh, throughout, I took that dude the two of my go-go uh, cassette tapes that you know I got that I brought with me so that I didn't miss home. I got a suit made free because I gave him those two cassettes free. That just shows you the power of go-go. I'm talking go-go. about what them suits that they travel the globe to come get. Man, that that just shows you how go-go was so powerful enough that you got hooked up to be have a free suit on, be suited and booted. Now. Also, DC around the mid to late 80s, early 90s, it w- drugs were ravaging a monster area. Then, of course, in 1986, you know what happened in Maryland with Lynn Bias passing, and how did that impact everyone around the DMV, knowing that he was about to really explode on the national scene, getting drafted by the Celtics, and then one fatal night cut everything short for him. And you were talking about the importance of John Thompson just a moment ago. That's why John Thompson was such a giant and such a protector of his players, because all it took was one night. You know, we thought, you know, like anybody, you thought that the talk of going pro with somebody from right around, you thought that that talk, you know, insulated you. You thought that that talk, you know, and that and that journey for anybody was like, oh my God, he made it, right? And so that the night before, just one night, one. Pull whatever that what it whatever it was that happened that night that ended his life because you know of his heart it just made us it made us have different conversations right because you know because you just never knew one you know thinking you young and you know young dumb and full of could get you you know could get could zero convert your HIV status one drink and one of one of them zemas you know that was so much alcohol that used to burn your chest. People was blacking out over. He had somebody with there was all these things in the '80s that just all started to hit at the same time. That either checked you, you know. That's really for me um, why why uh, check yourself before you wreck yourself was always in my head because it was always this one moment. You know that was the thing that made the news. Somebody had made one decision that ended them, not you know sent them to jail, it killed people, it was killing people, you know, or at the time, like I said, somebody, you know, some girl getting pregnant, but it was one time, I didn't think you get pregnant one time, I didn't think you get pregnant first time, it was all of this kind of, all of those conversations got had at the same time, because of Lynn Bias, right, because we, you know, Lynn was a star, Lynn was, you know, made nightly news, you know, when they did, you know, when they often did those, you know, red skin updates and the bullet updates, you know what I mean, they was going, you know, they were going to, if they could, fit him in there because he was, he was aspiration, right? And then that all dissolved in one night. So mm-hmm. it was, it was a very, very big deal. I remember my pastor preaching about it, you know, uh, from the pulpit, not that first Sunday, but the following, like he almost needed to take it in for a minute, you know? Yeah, because I was looking at the 30 for 30 without bias and just seeing 
his highlights of when it was matching up against Jordan and some of the other big names that were in the ACC at that time, and knowing that he got drafted to the Celtics, he was in good shape to keep that lineage going with Bird, McHale, Parrish, ML Carr, Cornbread, Maxwell, all of those guys. And I mean, again, he was a Titan, right? And and for him to be, you know, for, for, for us, that's, you know, think about college age, you know, that's the dude on the basketball court, you know, in your neighborhood at the recreation center. And here he is on local and national news at least once a week when they win season, you know, and just to see it, his death, you know, people want to make it seem like it said, you know, some sort of ripple. It was an earthquake because it, 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 it threw everybody off. And, you know, it was, again, that belief that the op that opportunity would, would cover you and protect you and that somehow it came with a whole bunch of people who made you make better decisions when it didn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I was also looking at the ESPN piece um, called Dunbar Boys, I believe, about the Dunbar Poets over in Baltimore with David Wingate, Muggsy Bowles, and those guys, and how they were saying a lot of the dealers were kind of looking out for them, say, hey, stay out the streets. I'll give you this. Even though we know where this money comes from, I don't want to see you out here jacking somebody for something. And, you know, you know, again, and I even think that is, you know, probably why it was such a shock, because you're right, because I grew up in the projects, Southwest M Street and Delaware Avenue. And, you know, even even in those little spaces, it was always, you know, that that good hood, the dude who was looking out for you because I had those dudes protect me. Be like, no, nah, you ain't going to this party because just because I was smart and was sitting in the library all day. They were like, what you doing here? Because I just want to hang out. Nope, don't get to do that. No. Mm, this is back in the days when you used to have a Hooper's pass or just a pass in general, where if they knew you had potential to get out, whether it's athletics or academics, they will make sure you were straight and make sure that you weren't in spots where you didn't need to be. Yeah. And took you and, and took you out forcefully if they had to. Mm. And threatened you. <laughs> oh yeah, they, they, they put the hand in the coat and he's not giving you a pamphlet either. We know what's in the coat, so it's, you know, you know. So culturally, what was the transition like for you coming from DMV, going down south to North Carolina and then in, intermingling with UNCG, Ooh, UNCG Salem State, so Wake Forest? One of the insulating things about, like I said, you know, being from this black city was going to see if I was black smart or smart smart but I didn't realize how protected I was in the culture I was from until one day, just, you know, Gilbert College is on, you know, this lush campus over here, this little campus across the street, like a, you know, a gas station or something. And then the road on this side, I think was Guilford Road or Guilford Avenue was a major road. And, you know, right there was three or four, like a bank to a supermarket was, you know, where we lived our lives. So I remember coming to the front of the campus across the street to go get groceries and like four white boys in a truck, literally, you know, nigga, and I was like, whoa, this is real. Like, you know, the thing that mom and them, because my mother's from Mississippi, you know, that, that people were like, you be careful down there. And I'm like, well, what are they going to do? And, you know, and I was like, yo, it's four of them right here to stop. It was interesting, though, because something in the moment, bro, also tapped me into my black superpower. You know what I'm saying? Uh, my, my, my friend uh, Napoleon, the legend, calls it black privilege. Because there was something about the fact that 
they waited till the light changed to do it, even though it was four of them. You know what I mean? I was like, they could have easily jumped me, but there was something about the fact that I'm, you know, even if I'm six two, you know, even at the time I was leaner, but still, you know, a black dude. And I remember after they said that, I remember looking around because, you know, this is, you know, I remember looking going, okay, if I have to, there's a tree branch over there. That if I, so if I have to, one or two of them gonna die if they take me out, you know what I mean? But I, it, that moment, that culture shift was a culture shock because I had, you know, and it, it, it was, and I will say this, the single moment where I got out of the nigga debate, you know, because black people always, oh, nigga, it's, cool. it's a term of endearment, da, da, da. I was like, yeah, no. Nah. Some of y'all say it like them white boys on that truck. Something, somebody owe you some money, you catch somebody with your girl, you ready to fight, it come out of your mouth with the same vitriol that I heard on that red pickup truck in Greensboro, North Carolina. So I'm not debating with y'all. It's not, ain't no term of endearment. You can't take back a word that is dipped, fried in, and laced with, hey, you just can't take it and make it pretty. You can try to justify it, but then somebody, you see somebody, that same dude that owe you $20, that same dude looking at your girl, you're gonna use that same word with the A or the A-H on it, and it, the rage coming out of your mouth sounds just like them boys on that red pickup truck. So mm -hmm. it was a huge shift. Yeah, I kind of had a shift myself when I went to UNCG, the high school I went to, an area I grew up predominantly African-American, UNCG predominantly white, although we have a good amount of international students. So it was my first time intermingling with you know white people and then being in spaces where I'm the only one or where this may be your first experience with somebody black. Thankfully, nobody asked me to touch their hair. So it was my first time learning like how you were talking about code switching, about how to navigate in two worlds. While we had that slice of HBCU life on campus with the fraternities and sororities, although we didn't have a football team, you, you knew most of the black folks at UNCG's campus would show up when it was basketball season and when it was time for probate and then Black Student Union. So it was interesting to try to be able to carve out a space where you want to feel proud of your Blackness and not have to be compromised, but just know the majority space says, hmm, we're going to have to put up with you and we're going to try to be PC about it. Right. And it's really interesting too, um, because we had an incident, you know, Gilbert was a Quaker liberal arts group. So the Quaker uh, uh, practice is that, you know, if there is in fact a, a conflict of any sort, there is a meeting held, right? And one of the black football players ended up having somebody from UNCG come onto the campus looking for him with a shotgun. We were like, what, what, you know, what happened, what happened? And I remember us having to have like a midnight meeting about this because it had caused such a uproar on the campus. And it was just very interesting for me to see the ways that the Northern and the Southern, the male and the female, the, the, the athletic and the academic all went away when we became, you know, when we realized we were black. So no matter what, the, you know, we always had some sort of moment, some little, you know, some sort of way of engaging that made sure we knew as black folk, we had each other's back. And there was that moment. Then we had a moment where, um, you know, one of the brothers on campus, also an academic scholarship. I mean, not on, not on academic and not on not on academic scholarship. Just there, smart student. This is school he chose to go to, and he was in like a philosophy class. And the teacher, you know, the professor brought up 
the story of this character named Berta, and then talking about him, he said, you know, he was he was he was you know he was a commoner, but he had the brain of genius, and so he could go from world to world. You know, he could be in you know amongst you know the civilians and then amongst royalty and engage them. You know, and you know, and apparently he said, um, you know, he was kind of like he could he was a house nigger and a field nigger. And he said that in the class, but mostly white people were the one very fair-skinned black dude who ended up bringing it to the black, you know, the African-American Cultural Society, which is what we were, the Black Student Union on Guilford's campus. So he brought it to us in a meeting first. Then we had to bring our, you know, the black faculty in because we like, we need some support because this could get black, you know what I mean? And then just the way that they helped us handle writing it up, getting him censored, you know, handling it in a way that made sure it had some impact, you know what I mean? Because we was ready. I'm DC. I was ready to break, you know, smash some windows and cut his tires. I was ready to make him feel afraid, you know, and they made him feel afraid for his job. And that was, you know, that was that that was a really smart lesson that I learned. But yeah, that the the, the culture shifts, like you said, being on, you know, Guilford's campus probably has, you know, fifteen hundred people, probably had eleven hundred when I was there. And I could I couldn't in my class name the black men, period. I was friends with the black men who weren't there on athletic scholarship, the, 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 the students, you know, and, um, and probably, you know, one of them, you know, I have a relationship with to this day and I graduated in 1987. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there was something that, that connected us all because that was, you know, college is what, 18, 19 to 23. It's pivotal. And we had some pivotal lessons in there, you know, that were, that shook some of us who weren't from the South and had, and you know, that shook some folk who, that empowered some people who were from the South. And, you know, it felt different to be on the campus and have some, some support that was going to, you know, it wasn't instantly going to go the Southern route. That's how we call it. Right. And for those of you that don't know, Greensboro, definitely a uh, influencer as far as the civil rights movement, home oh, of the sit-in movement. Go check out the International Civil Rights Museum on February 1 Road. If you go to Auntie's campus, there's a statue of the Greensboro Four. And also look up Greensboro Truth and Reconciliation. There's another oh, topic sir. for another day. Oh, sir. And then also to Climax, North Carolina, a man by the name of Clarence Avant. Yes, Mr. Clarence Avant, Taboo Records, Sussex, Dennis Coffey, Bill Withers. May I go on and go forth? He's from around there. And then I believe Deborah Lee is from Greensboro as well. Yes, sir. I saw the greatest show of my life at the Greensboro Coliseum when Prince went on tour with the Purple Rain tour. I saw some of the best shows of my life in Greensboro. Uh, uh, Prince of the Purple Rain Tour with Sheila E. Open and Act with flowers rained down from the ceiling. Ashman and Simpson coming out of a boulder during that Solid as a Rock Tour. Uh, 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 first time I saw uh, Anita Baker live, 1986. She opened for Jeffrey Osborne when he was real popular with the Woo Woo song. It was, yeah, life in Greenboro. And just, you know, and people wondered how a black boy from DC survived, you know down there in the South is because a t was not far, you know, and, 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 and UNCG, you know, we knew where to go to be culturated, you know, we knew what church to go to for Easter Sunday. United House of Prayer, Best Soul Food, Boom. also Stephanie's on Hanneman Road, and also Maxie B's, and one regret that I had when I went to UNCG, I never got to go to a concert at the Coliseum, even though it was right up the street, so I never went to Super Jam, and you were at Greensboro when Super Jam was at its height, you didn't. No, what? sir. 
no, no, sir. If you look at the show Atlanta when De when in the jail scene season one where the guy told Donald Glover stop being weird, I was focused mm -hmm. on school and on my radio show on WAG's campus. But um, yeah, Greensboro Carson was right up the street, so I never made it to a concert or ACC tournament. But I did go sample that uh, barbecue across the street at Staney's. Look, look, okay, okay. Wow. I mean, I get it because I went to school at like, like literally, you know, it was all about academic. It was all about being a Dean Scott, a Dana scholar, but being from DC, I needed black folk. I needed, I needed culture. You know, you see, a, this, I, you know, I got a, a case in the front room that still holds a thousand CDs. My old Natalie Cole collection, Patty DeBell collection, Mariah Carey, Whitney Houston, Stevie Wonder, Luther Vandross, like literally the whole collection. So, you know, to be able to you know, to, to see Prince walk up under the stage and say, good evening, Greensboro. My name is Prince and I've come to play with you. Dearly beloved, and you feel this rumble. It's like, you know, you know, the stage is open and he starts to rise and you're like, God, I mean, that's the stage with, we up here, how can we feel that so strong? And you look up and realize that the ceiling is opening and it's raining fresh flowers on us while he's rising. And it's like, what is this? And you know, just to, best show I've ever seen in my life. Just Greensboro, you know, wholesome, you know, one of, one of my best friends on the entire planet. I met the day, like minority student orientation, the first day on campus. And she and I could not talk for a year and get on the phone for six hours. So, you know, there was just something about that time that point in our lives, you know, she and I also in another Black student also went to London together. So we were there for that experience. She and I especially traveled, you know, took like above all, but we're like, we here in Europe, we're gonna get up to you real fast and we're gonna see everything. So that opportunity was centered in Greensboro for the show, it gave me the world. Mm -hmm. So what was that experience like for you going over to London doing study abroad? Because I didn't really realize about the racism that Black space in the UK until I was speaking with those that lived in the UK and watched the movie Babylon and was thinking like, oh, this same stuff goes on over there like it does here, but it's just more subtle over in the UK. And so we knew there was going to be a problem when, because I think 35 of us went and there were 32 white kids. Well, actually there were 31 white kids, one Indian kid. He might've been Indian. No, I think Fred was Indian and, nope. I think it's pure Indian. Uh, no, he couldn't have been. I think his mom was in his father was white. So it was 31 uh, white kids, an Indian kid, and then us three blacks. And when we first got there, it was the, you know, late August and the Notting Hill Gate Festival was, you know, like that weekend. And we got the warning, and I don't remember if it was from our, if it was from our, no, it had to have been somebody local. So some local tour guide or something telling us to be careful, you know, to stay away or stay vigilant if we made our way near the Notting Hill Gate Festival. We were like, ooh, okay, we should be. And then we saw the, you know, the newspaper from last year's festival, and it was like all these island people dancing with the bobbies in the street. And we were like, oh crap, they just told us to stay away from the black event. Right? So of course, you know, me, Celeste and Cynthia, you know, a couple of them, we made our way directly to them. And we were in the streets like, what are they talking about? This is fire, you know, and it was just you know, it, it, that made me go searching. First of all, hello, bro, because I had to. Fish and chips are good, 
but I needed to know where the oxtails were. I needed to know where the fried chicken was. I needed to know how to get a, a lineup. I needed to know where black people shopped. I needed to know where black people went to church. And so literally, it, it, you know, it was Celeste and I walked because we were in the Queens uh, Bayswater area. And so we could walk a few, a few uh, blocks and being kind of the heart of downtown and see the difference between being around colored people, right? Mm -hmm. Indian, South Asian, you know, people, uh, brown people from other areas and desperately seeing black people because we knew there was a separate cultural conversation to be had, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Again, and, and, and it not only uh, played a role, they had played a role when we traveled and like would see people in Milan on the street, they'd be like, hey, hey, and spend two days together. Because, you know, where y'all going to dinner? Because we it, we cleave to each other. And um, yeah, I remember, you know, when 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 it was time to go get my hair cut, you know, I was finally feeling uh, straggly. And, you know, and somebody said, yeah, well, you know, the best barbers are in Brighton, but I don't know if you want to go in Brighton. I was like, then we going to Brighton, right? We going to where the black people live. And it felt like, oh, snap. For me, it felt like, oh, this is around the world. Cause it's like, you know, the heart of DC, Mall Park, and then you know, just like we were, you know, when, when this insurrection happened at the Capitol, you know, what what people were, you know, when uh, I was laughing at what people in my ha ha laughing, it's like those crazy fools turn the wrong corner and end up down East Capitol Street the wrong way in DC. Somebody gonna get their skull bust open, you know. That's what London felt like. It's like, yeah, here's this London, but you get on the train and go a few stops that way because you're gonna get your hair cut. So while you're there, you may as well get some you know, some, some, some sorrel and some ackee and some, you know, from this, you're like, this is a whole nother spot. London got hood, London got projects, London got black people in a bad way. Okay. You know, and then we saw that in Paris. We saw that, you know, in, in, as we traveled everywhere. It's hoods everywhere. And if you look at the Netflix series, Top Boy, it's like the British version of The Wire. Yeah. No doubt. It's the British version of The Wire. Right, so you know about Nando's and that peri-peri sauce. And I take that as a yes. So yes. you graduate from Guilford at this point. So did BET come to the picture directly after college or did you work a job before BET and was thinking, so, I need to get out? I came, to, I came to Guilford College already working for the DC government. I started working there my 11th, uh, my, my junior year. And so there was a point in my senior year where I had enough credits that I was doing a half day. So I would do three classes, get on a bus and go to my job at 13, uh, wait a minute, 3149 16th Street was where the Department of Recreation headquarters was. So I would take the bus, get up, get lunch, go in. And, um, and the great thing about that, that, that was, you know, you had, I had all the support, I had all the structure. Um, and I wonder what it saved me from because there were no spring breaks for me. Uh, there was leave campus on Saturday morning, get home, you know, drive, get home Saturday, you know, mid afternoon if I left early enough, you know, that night mom was frying my favorite meal Sunday. We went to church Monday, I went to work. And my job left work for me. So if they knew I was coming home spring break, you know, they would, I would open the file cabinet and literally do be stacks on top of stacks. And they would leave it for me because when I, you know, my 11th, uh, my, 11, 12 grade years, I developed this filing system. And so they were like, we ain't trying to mess up your system, so we don't touch it, we just put it in there. And so when I graduate, I mean, when every year, 
because I was taking accounting. You know, my major was English, Spanish, but my main major was accounting. And so every semester I got a raise. Every every semester I got a raise. So by the time I graduated, they changed. They gave me a formal title, benefits, and all of that. And so I was like, it's a good job. I got a good government job, you know. And I was in it. I liked it. I, it was professional. It was engaging. Um, you know, because where, where the department was was in the middle of the Latin community in DC at Adams Morgan. And so if somebody came in like to one of the other departments who couldn't speak English, they would call me. So I was, you know, I had relationships with cultural activities, accounting, reservations for the parks and the playgrounds. And so, you know, it was, it was, it was exciting. It felt like, wow, this experience of living in, you know, being from DC, having this good job is crazy. I'm living this life. And then, uh, I mean, one day I got called to jury duty. That's what it was. I got called to jury duty and ended up having to go to work. And because of where the you know, Judiciary Square is, I ended up going to work on a, on a direction that, you know, that I wouldn't have normally gone in. And it went past BET headquarters in, in Northeast. And at the time, I did not know BET was in DC. I knew they were in the area. And my prayer out loud, Jarrell, was literally, but I'm thinking, I got a degree in English, Spanish, and accounting. That's the TV station. I don't know nothing about it. So it literally just, like, if you could see it in the dream, in the movie of my life, the prayer would have gone off like a light smoke, you know, like, it just, there was no way that it could have had any weight to it because I would have had no way to know how to get there. Um, and then over the next two years, because that's the funny thing about kind of speaking your truth, over the next two years, like, work got funny and I got moved around to different apartments and doing other stuff. And I just realized that I had outgrown it. And, you know, and I ended up um, talking to my boss in, in, uh, in the communications uh, department. And she was like, so my husband is looking for a legal assistant in his office. And my best girlfriend is looking for a managerial aide and her uh, editorial assistant in her management firm, which, you know, these are opportunities because it's really time for you to go. I go and pick, even though people have always said my whole life, boy, the way you talk, the way you can Talk, you know, you negotiate, use words, you should be a lawyer. Why didn't that, why didn't that legal opportunity just scream to me? I was like, do this one. And I went to this job after I left the Department of Recreation where I was sick, where I was there for two months. And it was in the summer, in the height of DC summer, June and July. I went into this office and was sick every day because I'm one of these people, you know, you know, if you've ever spent, you've been done, DC hot, DC in the summer can just like make you not want to touch yourself hot, you know? And so I'm in this office having to wear a shirt and tie every day. And then, you know, DC's 90 degrees and with your humidity feeling like 106. And then I was going into an office with no windows, air blowing consistently that was probably 60 degrees. So you, as you can imagine. And then one day they said to me, uh, so we're moving our office from downtown. It was downtown directly across from the Warner, uh, the Warner Theater. Um, we're moving to, they said they were moving to the courthouse in, in Virginia. And then even though I had only been uh, completed, had only completed two thirds or two months of my three month probation, they said, we're going to give you the job permanently. If you, you know, if you take the job, we want to come with us. And God said to me, if you trust me, don't go. And I was like, what? Um, the blessing was having, you know, been with this government job so long, you know, I still had sick leave and, 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 and vacation time that I could live on. And so I was like, for the first time since I was 12 and I've been working now, I was 26, I took time off and I was like, okay, just breathe, just breathe, just breathe. Um, 
Then after two weeks, I was like, all right, I'm bored. I need to do something. I'm a worker. Let's go. And then somebody's like, why don't you get a job at a temp agency until you figure out what you want to do? Okay, how you find one? They're like, I don't know. So I pulled out the old school yellow pages, bro, and said, Lord, I need help. And went to temporary agencies and found a full page ad for a temp agency called Help Unlimited. I asked for help. I got Help Unlimited. Sounded like a sign. Went in there, uh, took my typing test with them. They placed me. Uh, that's that, that that I went on a Monday, they placed me immediately on a Tuesday. Um, I was in another management firm doing this kind of you know, ancillary work for I think a week or two, and then they sent me to ABC News for a week. And you know, I got to talk to one of the coordinating producers, and you know, she, I was telling her my story, and I was like, She's like, So you spent the you know, you spent time in London, you know, you know it well. I was like, Oh, god, yes, we were all over, you know, because like. And I know every nook and cranny and had done everything from the embassies to the Notting Hill Gate Festival. And she was like, you might be a really good fit to go get one of our journalists because he's packing up because he's been there for months. And now it's time to come home. And so we were thinking of sending somebody and perhaps you could help with coordination. And I was like, oh, great, great. Because I wanted to go back to London. To London. This was 91 and I had been, been there in 85. And I was like, oh, great. I said, I want to go back. Here's the opportunity. And she goes, oh, okay, so uh, call and confirm it with me on Monday. Oh, there's, and I was getting, look, I'm getting ready to hang up. She goes, oh, there's also a position open at BET. I'm sorry, wait, what? I'm sorry, wait, what? I'm sorry, wait, what? Yeah, I'll, I'll take it. I want the BET one. Okay. She goes, oh, okay, wow. I don't care what it was. I don't know. I didn't know. I didn't care. And um, so I walked in on Monday to work for Jeffrey K. Lee, the senior vice president of network operations in his front office. And um, uh, Deborah Williams, Deborah Parker Williams, um, uh, said to me, um, "So be, you know, I hope you brought your resume because the position you're open, you're sitting in is available, and the director of uh, music program is looking for an executive assistant." Now it's funny because I'm looking at you here, and I guess my Facebook is open behind me, and her picture because I just bought her her new family book is staring at me as I tell this story. So I sat, I, so I gave her my resume and interview with. Lydia Cole on Tuesday morning because she was looking for an executive assistant. And I was like, okay, this is, uh, uh, I don't know what BET does, like what they do behind the scenes, but I know how to do executive assistant. I know how to do that. Um, so we did a 45 minute inter interview. And she said to me, um, after she asked about, you know, how long have I been working, how much I type, what kind of things I done, where I went to school, all this stuff. She said, so tell me, um, if you have, do you have any questions? I said, I only have one. What's your middle name? She said, I'm sorry. I said, God told me that, because uh, her name said, her name place said Lydia N. Cole. And God told me that if your N stood for Natalie, I'd be working for Lydia Natalie Cole. And Natalie Cole is my favorite singer. So it's a sign I should be here. And I'm like this. She said, do you actually believe that? I said, yes, ma'am. That's, that's all I got. She goes, wow, okay, okay. So my name is Lydia Natalie Cole. And she said, and the truth is, when most women get married, their last name becomes their middle initial. So she should have been Lydia J. Cole. But she liked Natalie so much, she kept it when she married Dr. Reginald Cole. And so, you know, that, um, we had a really great interview and then I ended up being there for maybe a month and then leaving and then coming back in March to be in the legal department with Gordon Bolter. And I was like, wait, I wonder why I never heard from Ms. Cole. It seemed like we really got along. And so I go to see her and say, can I see him have, have a minute with you? And she said, and I said, I, I, you hadn't asked me for my references. So I wrote them all down again. So she said, I wanna be honest with you. I went up front to ask about why 
you, um, what they thought about you while you worked for them. I said, and, and she said, and one of the, one of the women said that you spent too much time doodling. I said, well, did she tell you I was doodling because the report she gave me that we're due at the end of the day, I often turned in before lunch. She wasn't prepared for that, so she didn't have a next thing. And so I found myself reading magazines. I found myself studying because I was at work, you know? And so I was trying to find ways to busy myself. That's said, well, I assure you, call any of my references. If there's work to be done, I do it. It's what I do. And so, you know, she said, you know what, Kevin, I'm going to bet on you. Welcome to BET. And so that's Lydia Natalie Cole is the reason I walked into BET as her executive assistant. And, um, you know, and then my life made sense, bro, because I've been one of those people who collected old jets, old ebony's, old write-ons, black all-stars, sepia, you know, just if our faces were on it, you know, especially being in the, in the, in the, um, in the library, you know what I mean? I'd be in there to reference like, look, all these black magazines. Because sometimes in the store, all you knew about was Ebony and Jet. You had to go to the magazine section of the library to see all these, uh, all these things. So it all made sense. So I remember one of the first things I did was to, you know, was to, was to um, just kind of organize stuff, you know? And so I remember, I remember, so this is, this is March 91. And I remember like taking three hip hop uh, video uh, CDs down to the mailroom, I was like, I need a file cabinet. The dude was like, uh, so you're gonna have to order it. It's gonna take about two weeks. I was like, I need it now. And so I did this kind of, this triage of these kind of big three, uh, uh, whatever three popular artists were out at the time. And he's like, man, you tell me if I get you a, a, a file cabinet, I can have any one of those. I said, bring it upstairs by lunch, you can have all three of them, you know, from the music department. Music department had so much weight, so much heat. So I gave them to her, and I promise you, the, the, the daggone file cabinet beat me to my desk. And then um, Lydia had the same conversation with me that was, um, you know, first she said to me in March, she said, so um, we, you know, the raises that we do, because she said, I know you're going to have to take a, a, a pay loss and be here, but and the raises that we do are August, but it's for a nine-month period before that, and you, so you're going to have to wait till next year, but I promise you we'll have this conversation again. Um, and then the first thing I did, bro, was I'm there and I was like, so what are we doing for Black Music Month? And they were like, uh, what? That was, I asked that question, I was like, what are we doing for Black Music Month? And they were like, uh, they were like, got any ideas? I was like, let's do Diva Week, you know, let's bring in our heavy hitters and, and have them sit down with Donnie and get their flowers and, you know, and get their honor where it's due because they don't get that on 60 Minutes. They don't get that on these other shows. They might get, you know, they might get it on Arsenio, but you know, unless the record label has a good record out, we don't have anything to honor them like that. So June of 91, we brought in. So Aretha Franklin wouldn't travel because she wouldn't fly. Natalie Cole had just released Unforgettable, so she was on the road. But we brought in Diana Ross, Shaka Khan, Patti LaBelle, Gladys Knight. And then my big, like, tour de force accomplishment was to convince my boss that Phyllis Hyman should have been on the diva list. And, you know, the way DC was, in the spring, summer, out of Wolf Trap. You know, that was the time when it was time to do shows. And so Phyllis was a DC staple. And so she and her husband and I went to Wolf Trap to see Phyllis Hyman in concert. And Phyllis Hyman tore that place up. And she's singing Living All Alone. And in the middle of Living All Alone, she does this whistle bridge, you know? But she was just mic and just killing it. And uh, um, at one point, I put my hands up. I was saying, "Call the birds home, woman!" And everybody laughed. And she was like, "Yeah, let's book her." And I was like, "God, I'm an I'm a assistant, and I now a whole week of programming on Video Soul, 
I helped do it, you know. So and then, like the next year, she, you know, I think maybe later that year, she was like, I feel like I'm gonna lose you. No, no, no. It was probably the beginning of '92. She's like, I feel like I'm gonna lose you. I don't. So I'm just bored because, you know, my little brain has always been working. So I can get, and I typed 104 words a minute. So there was just a lot that I could get done. You know, she used to come to my desk and I'd be like, huh? She's like, how are you doing that? So my brain is also able to kind of take in facts by paragraph. So I, when I heard her coming, I just took the next paragraph in and so I could keep going. Cause you know, when you live in the projects in a two bedroom apartment with a mother and three brothers, you know, when you're trying to study, your brother's like, I ain't touching you. I, I ain't touching you. You just learn to focus. And so she said, you know, I feel like I'm losing you. And she's like, so what is it going to take to keep you? And I was like, I saw this job description for the music researcher and record label leads on, you know, I want this job because everything in there, you know. And then she said, well, we haven't hired that job, you know, as you see, because they we're concerned about payola and getting videos in and get people slipping you money getting the playlist out to people in advance. And I was like, but I do this job already. <laughs> Sister, don't you see that? Everything on here, I already do. So if you trust me to do this, then this is the same thing. And I'd still be reporting to you. And she's like, what? You're not? Okay. And went to her boss and got me a huge raise. And then I went from executive assistant to the director of music programming to the BET music researcher and record label liaison. And so that's when, you know, all of that, all of that sepia and all of that stuff made sense because I started, I assembled files on everybody, like uh, literally all those magazines that probably at some sort of point for the culture could have been like historical for me were needed. So I was tearing magazines. Here, here's a Janet Jackson file. Here's Mike. Here's here's O'Brien. Here's you know Sherelle. Here's but you know because it was just kind of people were reading to see what was in the new. Um, billboard or what they put in the bio. But I was like, they have conversations in right on and in jet that are whole, that are deeper, that are richer. And so we need to have all of those. And so, you know, I tore up my whole magazine collection because now it made sense. Because I wasn't keeping them for history's sake. I was keeping them for culture's sake. Hello? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that became, you know, Donnie started to pay attention. And then Lydia, Miss, Miss Cole went on maternity leave and the woman who came in, Cindy Mahmoud, um, called me into her office because she said, um, so we've got an interview scheduled with Natalie Cole because we couldn't get her during the Unforgettable tour because she literally released the album and went on a two year world tour. So she wanted to make sure she got to BET with the new album. And she said, and so go home and write questions. I was like, go home and write questions for my favorite singer since I was 11, are you crazy? And so she called me into her office the next day and goes, Natalie Cole was the first black artist to be best new artist. Mm -hmm. Natalie Cole was, wait, Natalie won best uh, the album of the year for Unforgettable. That was the first for a black woman? Aretha never won it, Roberta never won it. No, first one. She was like, okay, wait, Natalie, Natalie had a degree in, yep, a degree in psychology and a minor in German. She was gonna be a doctor. She was gonna be a doctor. What? Okay. She said, I've decided, uh, I've decided who's doing the interview. And I was like, this could be nice. I mean, Natalie and Donnie Simpson, brown skin, light eyes, cameras on the right angles, this is gonna be great. And she said, you. And I was like, wait, what, wait, what, wait, what, wait, what are you talking about? I don't understand. And I was like, this is not how this happened. I said, for what show? She said, create it. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? This is not how this happened. She says, it's how, let me see how she send me my word. She said, it's how it's going to happen for you. We can teach you the technical stuff. But this, you have something, you have something that I think is something. And so 
you know, under the, uh, the tutelage and mentorship of Billy Woodruff, I became a producer. Like I sat down with, when I went to, when I showed up at the Sheridan Peninsula to interview Natalie Cole, uh, Natalie Cole knew Kevin E. Taylor, the fan, and read it, they had written her every year, sent report cards and told her how much I loved her and how much I loved each new album. So she's thinking BET let me come see the interview. Then she said, so who's doing, interview? who's doing the interview? I said, me, and she said, oh, hell no. And I was like, oh my God, she said, I'm not good enough, what? Oh my God, oh my God. And then she saw it on my face, she's like, no, 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 Kevin. I'm saying, oh hell no, because you have forgotten more about me than I ever remember. I was like, what? Oh, that's easy. I was like, I'll walk you through your career. And she looked over the makeup artist, did you hear him? He said, he gonna walk me through my career. And that is this, that's June 16th, 1993 at the Sheridan Peninsula Hotel, the first interview that I did for a series called Lyrically Speaking. Lyrically, you know, we'll talk about that, but Lyrically Speaking, Natalie begat Luther, Luther begat Lena, Anita, Luther, uh, T, uh, Lena, Anita, Stevie, Patty, and the last episode of it was three years later when I flew to Germany and then, I mean, and then to Denmark to interview Tina Turner. Man, some heavy hitters. And you mentioned Phyllis Hyman earlier. Now, people, look up vocals, any vocal of Phyllis Hyman. She was no joke vocally. She could sing literally a Burger King jingle and make you want to go get a waffle with cheese. But she did. Hold on. I, look, look, look. I can't throw away my Isotona gloves because Phyllis Hyman did the thing. And she, Isotona, they tuck you in like a second skin. I hear that when I put my Isotona gloves on. And they might be 20 years old, but they still together. And I was like, I, I, they they came back to me to Phyllis. I swear to you. Yeah, your Natalie Cole story of you interviewing her was the same way for me when I got a chance to interview Donnie Simpson. I grew up uh -huh. looking at Video Soul since I was a child, recorded the Top 20 Countdown, saying one day I'm going to be like Donnie Simpson. So he was still on WPGC at the time. And I ended up calling his people saying, hey, I am a college student. I have a radio show. I want to interview Donnie. And they were like, okay, the only time we can do an interview is right after his morning show. So literally, don't sue me, UNCG. I skipped a class so that I can interview Donnie Simpson. I'm like, I'm not missing this opportunity for nobody because this man got me to where I want to be. And to have the chance to interview him, I'm not passing it up. So I skipped my English 101 class so I could interview Donnie Simpson. Yeah. Yeah. And they, Donnie yeah. Simpson is a very, very good dude. I just saw it. We just did a BET reunion right after Thanksgiving. And Donnie, Donnie was on that's a, that's a good dude. Yeah, I, yeah. I'll tell you later. So, you know, Donnie left. Um, uh, they ended up ending uh, video soul, and there wasn't a, there wasn't a real proper goodbye for Donnie, as far as I was concerned. And so I got to do a show called Notarize, which was uh, which was a, the original episode of Notarize was uh, Notarize the top twenty videos of the twentieth century. So it was all the music videos, and our big deal in all of the promo all of the promotion was that, and the number one video is not Thriller. And people were like. What? How could that be? No, 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 no. And so one of the things that I was called to do in this 12-hour show, 12 hours, is that they, uh, Stephen Hill, who had come in from, uh, uh, by this time, and you know, this is 99, would come in from uh, MTV, 
It was like, so it's going to be an hour of Cedar and an hour of, you know, Paul Porter and an hour with Tigger and an hour with Gets from the Street and an hour with, uh, an hour with Eliza Michelle from All and an hour with Rachel from Caribbean Rhythms and an hour with Sherry Carter. And I was like, yeah. Here's my concern. And, uh, you know, this is just one of these producer moments where you, you know, where you have to trust your gut. But what my gut said to me is, well, what if somebody doesn't like somebody? What if they don't like Cena? What if they don't like Eliza Michelle? What if they don't like Hits? They turn away for an hour, they're gone. You know, there's too many things out there to distract them. So the way, my God, that I ended up being at, at work for three days in a row. You hear me? People were bringing me meals, driving by at midnight to check on me because I had to choreograph this, this 12 hour format that included Cedar introducing the video and coming out and it was Rachel and then, you know, Rachel tossed two lines of the show, then they tossed the hits. And then we go to the video and it was just kind of like, so I need, you know, I had this dispatch teams and I was like, I need you to do, you know, 192, 93, uh, 193, 92, 70, you know what I mean? It was just, it was madness, but it came out masterfully. And then I thought, yo, this is my opportunity to give Donnie Simpson his props. So while the other hosts for the first, for the 11 hours, I think it was 11, yeah, moved all over, Donnie got the top 10 by himself. So I was like, uh, Donnie, because I had the same reverence, Donnie, I don't, uh, I know that things may not have ended well, but I want you to come back with the show and uh, tell me, sir, what it would take. And he was like, you know, I remember working with you. If you want me to come back, I'll be, I, I was like, no, Mr. Simpson, tell me what it would take. Do I have to get you a Gucci shoe, do a suit? Do I have to get you a designer suit from your from Everett Hall, your favorite designer? Do I have to, do we owe you $10,000 of a stipend? Tell me what it's gonna cost. He was like, Kevin Feet, Mr. Mr. Simpson. It's gonna, I have to get a suit, don't I, sir? I have to send a limousine for you, don't I, sir? He's like, oh, oh, he said, okay, okay. He said, how about you tell me what you're gonna compensate me with? And so we got the suit made from Everett Hall, his favorite designer, uh, you know, I don't know, what he, they, they worked out what they paid him. You know, we built his own set. But then we did like promos of like all the employees lined up on the stairwell. You know, down in DC that uh, you came in through the basement to security. We lined up all the team through and they came to Donnie. Somebody handed him their baby and he kissed it. It was like, this is the return of a legend and you should be treated as such. So I felt like I got the opportunity to give Donnie Simpson his proper due, you know? And it, uh, especially because um, Stephen Hill had come up, you know, uh, you know, Stephen came in from MTV. I don't know how I felt about him. I don't know how I felt about MTV. I don't care. I don't, I don't know how I felt about any of it until he told me what he had in mind for the number one video. And he was like, so Kevin, get this. The number one video is not a music video. It's Dr. King's I Have a Dream Speech recorded on video. And I was like, oh my God, that's genius. So that's the only moment in the show where I brought everybody back is everybody tossed to Donnie, tossed, uh, said something about, about music, music video, the culture, um, leading up to Donnie saying the number one music video is not a music video at all, but rather a moment in history captured in video. And it was powerful because Donnie got that last reading. So it hits about 11, you know, quarter, you know, so no, it went to, the show went from 11 to 11. So about, you know, 10, 40, you know, people were in parties and in clubs around, you know, around the globe. And there were people who wrote us letters saying that the DJ stopped the music to turn up the screen because 
a lot of people hadn't seen Dr. King's I Had a, Spe I Have a Dream speech, which is not the two or three, you know, minutes you might get heard or the 40 seconds, I have a dream. It's eight minutes and 43 seconds. And most people had never in any school or in any opportunity seen the whole thing. So the world stopped to watch Donnie do the intro and then to watch the full I Have a Dream speech and the ratings were huge. Um, I, was, I just felt like, you know, it was, I, I couldn't have had a greater honor than to give Donnie Simpson the honor he was due, especially to be attached to that moment in history that we knew was going to be dynamic. Right. And a big congratulations to Donnie on getting inducted into the Radio Hall of Fame. So Radio Hall of Fame. Big up to Donnie for that. And also at this same time in D.C., we have a radio station out of Howard University, WHUR, which gave birth to a format that you still hear on Urban AC today, The Quiet Storm, Quiet which was started by Mr. Melvin Lindsay, who Lindsay, was on scene. Now, can you tell me about the impact of WHUR, Melvin Lindsay, and The Quiet Storm, and Miss Kathy Hughes? No. No. The, the, the level of impact that Quiet Storm has is not a thing you can really talk about because Melvin gave birth to a format that 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 resurrected careers, that gave birth to giants, that that took artists who were 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 signed but left on back shelves who 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 might not have had opportunities and made them mega stars like Luther Vandross and Luther Baker. Luther Vandross, uh, Luther Vandross's house is not a home got so big on Quiet Storm and it's six minutes. I'm, I'm sorry, uh, not a house is not a home, a superstar. Until you come back to me, that first from the first album, that was that song was six minutes and eleven seconds of a lush ballad that was supposed to be relegated to Quiet Storm, but Quiet Storm was such an institution that people used to record that block and play it on other formats, that people used to record that and, and, and keep it in their on their headsets, and that song got so big that they started to play it in daytime. You know what I mean? And other. Melvin Lindsay, you know, again, he, he, he resurrected careers. Melvin Lindsay made babies with that format. Melvin Lindsay and Quiet Storm and Kathy Hughes, Kathy Hughes, but Titan that gave us TV One, Kathy Hughes, Kathy Hughes that gave us a black uh, talk format. That, you almost, you, Kathy Hughes over here in the black talk, talk format would do it. Kathy Hughes over here with, 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 with TV One, Kathy Hughes over here and the ways that, you know, she believed in black culture so deeply that you know that that she's still in it to win it today there is no i mean there is no talking about uh the quiet storm in a way that would that would make sense to some people because it's it, 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 it it's such an is you know what i'm saying it's the quiet storm format is such an is that it's that it's on it's on radio stations in mobile alabama and fayetteville north carolina and denver colorado and Portland, Oregon, founded in DC from black romance music, you know, the, the Nita Baker called it Fireside Love Songs, you know what I mean? That you would not only hear songs, but you heard the you heard the whole introduction and, the, and they let it fade till you could hear all that stuff that used to make you smush your headsets to your ears. Quiet Storm was Quiet Storm make you think it made you think you were grown, right? It made you want to be grown and to grow. You wanted to be able to, to have dinner in your own place with somebody to the point that all you had to do is just put on Quiet Storm and, and light some candles and the music would do the rest. Now, if you're of it the wasn't just like 
it wasn't just sex, you know what I mean? It would, it would do the rest. It would set atmosphere. It would, it would, it would, it would, it would, it would help conversation. It would allow you to slow dance and get away the nerves. Quiet storm was its culture. Mm -hmm. It was, it's not like, it's like that nice alley-oop that set you up for a dunk. Now, if you're of the preteen or teen variety, you thought you were doing something if you got your love dedication either played back or they read your letter. Dear DJ so-and-so, I like to dedicate Ready for the World, Let Me Love You Down to my boyfriend, John. We've been going together for about six months. I really we met in Ms. Harris's class and, you know. And I would like to let him know that I like him. So can you play this record for me? It would really make my night. Sign, blah, blah, blah. Well, we're going to go ahead and get that record for you and follow that up with right. some With his beautiful elocution, we're going to dedicate this to Mimi and Hakeem. Love you, Dad. <laughs> right. Right, and you mentioned you mentioned Dewey Hughes. Now, for those of you that don't know, go look at the movie Talk to Me with Don Cheadle, Taraji P. Henson, Chedra Edro Four, and you'll learn about Mr. Petey Green, who his show, Petey Green's Washington, was one of the early staples on BET in his infancy. And quite the precursor to people like Howard Stern. Who, who also appeared on there. Yep, Howard Stern appeared on Petey Green's Washington as well. But yeah. Petey Green, forefather of the shot jock. Yeah. His story definitely very well told in that movie, which is directed by, I believe, Cassie Lemons. Yeah, Cassie Lemons. Yeah, she did Ease by You. And I think she was she in uh, Fear of a Black Hat, which is underrated to me, better than CB4. Shout out to Rusty Cundy. Don't at me. Fear of a Black Hat, better than CB4. NWH. <laughs> if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. But the one thing about BT that I really loved was that it really took current events, made it relatable to kids, preteens and teens of our age, you know, with Teen Summit, because I really wanted to be a posse member, even though I wasn't in DC. It made me just want to say, hey, can I go sit beside a Nanda or a Demu and just get my take on something? Because I mean, it was a hot show where you had kids talking about issues that affected them of the day, and you had the hottest young artists at the time giving their hot performances. So can you tell me about the impact of Teen Summit and what BT brought to the game as far as that? Teen Summit, I mean, so so there were there were there was so many um, things that happened on BET and then MTV or MTV and then BET, you know, Yo MTV Raps, Rap City, you know, 106 and Park, uh, TRL. It was just, Teen Summit was BET's megastar because it was a thing that didn't exist anywhere else. And what was so impactful about uh, Teen Summit is a they handled everything. They talked about drugs and. Uh, uh, sex and sexuality, they talk about death and dying, they talk about everything. And they, di they, didn't, they didn't ask any of the young people in the audience to, to play dumb, you know? So the posse, like you said, it, it, it gave young people permission to have a voice and a perspective. And so um, you combine this opportunity to talk about everything with great hosts, you know, Ananda, Lisa, uh, Lisa Johnson-Smith, uh, 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 Prince Dejour, Adibu Colon, you, you know, uh, On Jam Fran, hello, my good friend, Dr. Fran Edwards. You can combine all of that rich uh, uh, kind of lead in 
and these brilliant young people, and then the breaks that they got to take in the conversation, then introduced you to Escape, introduced you to Usher, introduced you to, you know, Criss Cross. And it's like, yeah, King Summit, you know, kicking the truth to the young black youth was literally that. It was this visual magazine that gave young people permission to stop and pay attention, stop and engage, to have a point of view that to, to, to feel like they could go to their, their parents and talk about stuff because they got real information about it before they dove in. And so, yeah, yeah Teen Summit was Teen, Teen Summit was a was a was a was a was a thing that I wished um, the world, the culture, hadn't gotten so distracted that there were things that we would toss away, like you know, Teen Summit and and. and BT News, and it's like, oh, I can get that somewhere else. It's like, no, we needed to be getting that from ourselves, doing that for ourselves. Right. Some of the thing that could come back right now and still be brilliant. Right. And bring back Emerge in YSB Magazine. You can't bring it back because almost all magazines are going away now. But I think there's a way it should be coming back in all of these formats. If it's, you know, if it's just a digital magazine, if it's a visual magazine, you know, a virtual one. All of the stuff has got to come back. And I hope that stuff is, you know, that just like always happens, that everything old is new again. And that we have a, a moment, you know, you're seeing it in a lot of ways that people are starting certain YouTube channels and certain, having certain conversations that, you know, perhaps we'll see a day soon when all of these, you know, those kinds of things come back around. My concern, you know, is that young people are so distracted with social media and trying to be stars that I don't know that we could assemble a posse, but I'd show like and try. Right. Now, what led you to the calling of becoming a pastor? Man, I'm going to shine it. So, let's, so, you know, 2000 found me in, uh, in New York to help uh, move with BET to, to create, that was a uh, senior producer of series and special. So I oversaw Midnight uh, Love, uh, BET Next, uh, uh, I can't remember, a couple of other shows, and then I was, you know, any specials we had. The first thing I did that we did um, on the 106 and Park set was a, a back to basic special with Boys to Men. Um, and uh, so, you know, I moved from uh, Capitol Hill House and my DC life where I was born and raised to Harlem. You know, 106 and Park was our address. One tenth and third was my address. So I could walk to work and walk through all that richness every day. And I thought, wow, what a great opportunity. What a great opportunity. What a big, what a big life. And I've been blessed that my adult best friend, you know, Celeste is my college best friend, and my best friend David Jackson, uh, had moved from Chicago to work for Scholastic or the Girl Scouts. I can't remember which one he came there and worked for first. So he was able to come to, to, to New York. Um, the month before I did. So he found an apartment. So, you know, people that struggle to move to New York, it's crazy real. But he found us, a, you know, a two bedroom spot at, you know, on the third. So I didn't have to do anything except pack the food from my refrigerator in one suitcase and a week's worth of clothes in the next one. Because literally, I think I got days notice when we realized we were, you know, it took, so, it took a while to sign the 106 Park physical deal, then to decide who was going. So I literally might have gotten days notice. You go. And so um, uh, doing 106 in Park, you know, doing specials, you know, oh, uh, AM at BET. So I take very great pride in owning and honoring that before the world met Laz Alonso as an actor, he was the host of AM at BET, our morning show. And I, I was his producer, director. And so, 
you know, we, you know, it's always good to, you know, I, 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 I flourish. I, 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 I scream at seeing how he's flourished. Um, and so we're doing all of that stuff and I'm still doing uh, um, uh, Access Granted. And so, you know, jumping on video sets and stuff and such and such. And so in January of 2001, uh, thank you for this opportunity to set the record straight. In January of 2001, the bishop, my, my archbishop, who uh, and our presiding prelate who lives in Los Angeles, California, uh, was on the East Coast because, you know, we've got uh, most of our churches in this 20 denomination, 20 church denomination are, you know, from upstate New York to, to, to Georgia are, are on the East Coast. And so he would come, you know, from December to, through January and travel his way down preaching. Um, and so he'd come to our Newark, New Jersey church, where I am right now, saying, uh, and he, he preached. And then he called me into a, uh, he called me that Monday night? No, he called me that Sunday night. He called me that Sunday night. I said, son, the Lord has commissioned to work in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the executive assistant. I'm the indispensable second hand, you know, second in command. And so I'm thinking he's calling me because he wants me to know that somebody's being called to New Brunswick start the new church and he wants me to help him. he said so son the lord has commissioned a new work in new brunswick new jersey okay and he's called you to lead it wait what wait what and so january 27 of 2001 i had my first bible study in a home in teaneck new jersey because we hadn't even found a place in new brunswick yet it's founding pastor i gotta go find some you know i gotta go find the church that i found and um so we are in you know, so I'm simultaneously at this time, uh, uh, senior supervising producer of series and specials for BET, and then pastor in, the, you know, in this central New Jersey college town, because, you know, New Brunswick, New Brunswick is where Rutgers' main campus is. And so I'm doing that, doing Bible study and, and search and on and back and forth, blah, blah, blah. we found a space downtown and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I can find balance in this. I can find balance in this. I can find balance in this. And so everything's going to be all right. And then in August of 2001, I am um, uh, called by Penny McDonald, who's the creative director of BET, and she tells me that we are doing um, an, uh, an access granted for Aaliyah's Rock the Boat. Oh, okay. And so you go to Miami, and then uh, you go into the Bahamas for, for two days. Oh, okay. Um, and Aaliyah comes on the 106 Park on Tuesday. I go in the green room and say, hey, I'm your producer on, on, uh, for, uh, for um, Access Granite. Uh, I'm going to join you in Miami. I'll already be there. I just wanted you to know my face. So when you know when you see my face and my crew, you know, it's me. And um, she says, um, so you have to come up with a little something. Because at the time, she was secretly dating Damon, Dan Damon Dash. And so, you know, you know, the video is a video. Her life is her life. And so she's like, we need to come up with something so that we can stop knowing it's time to stop rolling cameras. I was like, okay. So I was like, how about this? So anywhere, you know, if you see him, just do that. Do your hand up like that. Just do that. And that's kind of like, and sing, and close. You know what I mean? Ah. And so um, she goes, oh, that's good. I like that. And we hug and then, you know, make our way to Miami on Thursday. Um, and if you watch, if you go back, you've been tossing people to these other things. If you go online and watch the, um, Access Granite rocked the boat when Aaliyah walks in and goes, oh, hey, she's talking to me. Oh, hey, let's go. Time to make the video, you know? And we go in behind her. Um, we shoot, we shot all day in Miami. That night in 
uh, the University of Miami underwater and then flew to the Bahamas. While we were at the pool in Miami, Gina Smith, who was with uh, Aaliyah's record label, comes to me and says, Kevin, um, I need to ask a favor. I know I promised you complete access, but you know what access granted looks like. So they had me on the plane with Aaliyah Entertainment. I was like, I wouldn't be shooting on the plane. We don't do that. There's enough to do with the hair and makeup and choreography and meeting all the pieces and parts that it'd be cool to shoot on the plane, but I don't see it, you know what I mean? Um, and then you get to the, you know, you know, when we got to the plane, I knew we wouldn't have been able to do it. But at the time she said, I need you to just take a separate flight. You can, y'all make sure you get there before her. If you want to catch her plane landing and all of that, I was like, oh, that's great. But I don't want to be on a plane with her. Um, and so Gina Smith, Thursday night, wrote the changing of my itinerary by hand. It was that last minute. Um, and so the, if you haven't figured it out yet, I was supposed to be on the plane with Aaliyah. Mm. Took her and because Gina Smith, who also died on that plane, changed my uh, itinerary, I did not. Um, you know, and that was a whirlwind of emotion I can't even explain because when people talk about what it feels like to be close to death, they think you're being dramatic, but if it weren't, uh, literally, it's, it was a shift of a pin. Gina was like, change flights. Okay, I'm cool. Changed my flight, took the last shot of, you know, Aaliyah, uh, 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 Eric, uh, Chris uh, Maldonado, makeup artist is a friend of mine. Eric Foreman, Anthony died. Oh, that's Scott Gallon. Oh, there's a shot of all these people who are her team going to get on the plane and all of, I mean, going to get on the catamaran and then go pack and leave and they get on a plane where they die. And I happened to have a shot of all of that because that was her family. That was her team. That was people who were close to her. Gina Smith might have been in the shot. Douglas Kranz from Virgin was not. He wasn't on the boat. He was the number person that, you know, had moments in all of that shooting with each of them. And then you know, land in Baltimore because, you know, the reason I was excited about um, leaving, I was going to leave Aaliyah and then I had to fly to Miami and then to Baltimore because that Sunday morning I had to preach. And um, two of my deacons were going to drive down from Jersey, meet me in Baltimore, and then that's how I was going to get home. And so get to, uh, get to get to Baltimore Saturday night. They meet me, we check into the hotel, go to a steakhouse to get some no Italian restaurant, to get some food, get back to our hotel room, open the door, and my phone rings. And it's Penny, uh, nope, nope, I think it, I think it was uh, Diane Blankensee first, who was from the label. She's like, hey, have you talked to, da, 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 to the people from the team? And I was like, no, I just landed and just really got, just have, um, just getting settled. And she goes, mm. I was like, what's wrong? You've never called after a shoot. She's like, yeah, there's talk. And I was like, okay, you know, one of the things that happened early on in social media was always somebody had died. Every week, somebody had killed off somebody else. And then they'd have to come out and say, hey, not dead. Uh, and then my phone rang again, maybe 10 minutes later, and it was Penny McDonald. She's like, yeah, there's talk everywhere that the plane had crashed. But Penny's like, wait, what are you doing? What are you? Because according to arrangements she made, I'm on that plane. So she's like, oh, it might. I was like, no, Penny, they asked me to change my flight. She's like, oh, so I was like, yeah, I've been here since. Six o'clock. They didn't take off till six. She's like, damn. And I was like, wait, wait, wait. So now I'm shook, right? So I go to kind of have a private prayer moment. I was like, okay, God, what's happening? Then my phone rings again, and it's my mother. The number is my mother. When I answer, the voice is not my mother. Somebody says, one moment for your mother. And I was like, so somebody picked up my mama's phone to call me 
and then heard my voice and was like, yeah. He, that, she's like, baby, you all right? Yeah, they said that girl you were with. I said, wait, what? Wait, what? So we turned on the news and there was nothing for a period, but I could feel that it was not right. And so um, I laid down and just kind of took a break. And when I, somebody, you know, one of my deacons sat me on my shoulder when I lifted my head and said, Aaliyah Dana Hart, 1979, 2001. Then I had to go, you know, then I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. It's very interesting because there were no details yet. Then they said something happened. Then I was like, oh no, the plane crashed in Atlanta. And then I got up the next morning, went to Baltimore, to uh, Unity Fellowship Church, Baltimore to preach. And then after the service, went outside and my phone rang, it was Penny McDonald. And this is where the, where the world went from spinning to the world being pulled from under me because Penny says, so, I'm like so, the list is Aaliyah, Anthony Dodd, Eric Foreman, Christopher Maldonado, Gina Smith, Scott Gallagher, Douglas Krentz, and the pilot. I was like, and I, you know, collapsed in the street. I was like, what's wrong? Because, you know, when celebrities die, no matter the tragedy, they focus on the celebrity. When, you know, when, 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 uh, Kobe died, you know, it took a, you know, there was Kobe and his daughter. And then, they, you know, they had to kind of, oh yeah, and seven other people, oh, and hear their names and hear their stories. It was the same kind of way. And so, you know, get immediately in the car to get back to BET to 106 and Park. For some reason, even though that service was over like four or five o'clock, bruh, it took like, like if you've ever driven 95 from DC to New York on a Sunday, it can be. A jungle. It can be a. It can be like watching paint dry. For whatever reason, that that journey that should have been three hours, took seven, eight. I mean, it just was. So we had to pull off twice and just kind of get gas and get some air because it was just stupid. Um, and then I get to 106 and Park, and I'm like, okay, okay, okay. Here, here, here's the footage. And you know, Stephen Hill. Everybody was there Sunday night at midnight. It, it might as well have been Tuesday at 12 o'clock, you know, uh, Tuesday at 12.30 in the afternoon. And Steven looked me in the eye and he said, Kevin, listen, it would take a producer hours to look through the footage to see what they need to find. And it's already in your head. You have to look at this footage to give us clips. And I was like, come on. So literally they assigned somebody to me to rub my back and blow my nose while I'm watching footage of people who are dead that I had just spent three days with. You know, so you asked how it became, so I'm already past it because people thought it was after that that I became past it. it was already that. Then that happened in August, you know, there's all this crazy madness. I know what it feels like to have paparazzi outside your door and driving past you on the street taking pictures. I know what it's like to, to, to for people to be giving out your phone numbers and the numbers to some journalists who's trying to get a quote. And then, you know, then there's the funeral. The family invites me to the funeral go to the funeral and it's horrible because it's a bunch of famous people, but they're all crying. Mm -hmm. So your brain, my brain was just kind of like, where am I that, oh, there's so, and so, and there's Monica, there's, oh, there's Jay-Z, there's Timbaland, there's Genuine, there's Missy Elliott, there's Monica. Why are they all crying? Because my brain, you know, and it's just too much. Um, and even, even Stephen and uh, Stephen Hill and Kelly G are walking beside me and I, you know, I have to greet her mother and her brother and her father. And that was, just the most painful thing because like her mother touched my face because I was close to her more recently than she was. You know what I mean? Her father 
was ailing, so he couldn't stand it. So I got on my knees to talk to her. Her brother, Rashad, just fell into me, and I had to just hold him because, again, I had been with her. So then I'm just, it's like, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here because it was too. And then, you know, walking down the street, and Stephen Hill and uh, Kelly G get beside me. Steve's like, hey, how you doing? I was like, I was like it's a lot. It's a lot. And he's like, you mean it's a lot. You're doing a from interview, you know what I mean? It was like that. And then the paparazzi were like, Kevin, how are you feeling? And he was like, oh, crap. And they pushed me in the cab and they got it on either side. And Steve was like, why didn't you tell me it was this crazy? I said, I tried to tell you, you weren't listening to me because I guess he didn't think the death of Aaliyah would become the thing it became, you know? And so they gave me, that was kind of the Friday of the week after she had passed, you know what I mean? After that weekend. And they gave me the next week off where I was just kind of like, what happened, what happened, what happened? And then the following week, so that's end of August, first week of September, the following week, the following Tuesday, uh, following Monday, I go to work at Penny McDonald's says, Kevin, you ready to go back? You know, how are you feeling? And I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to feel how I'm supposed to feel because I wasn't on the plane. I was supposed to be, but I wasn't. So it's like, um, um, yeah, I'm ready to go back to work. I can't like let this shake me. I, I don't know what to do with it. But so my brain is scrambling. I was like, yes, let's get back. Let's get back to it. Let's get back to it. And so she said, so we got access granted um, with DMX for, uh, uh, for who we be. Da-na, da-na. That song was fire. My, love, my, my mother, my father, I love her. I hate her. You know what I mean? Um, and, th and then there was a song called Goodbye by Jagged Edge that they were doing uh, access granted for. So the trip would be plentiful. We would get two specials out of it going to LA. And so um, she says, well, let me, I'll, you know, I'll work for travel, we'll make the arrangements. Then she calls me late Monday afternoon saying, they got you flying out of uh, out of Newark and you live in Harlem. That just is stupid because you have to drive longer through the city to get to the airport than if they just had you come out of LaGuardia. So she's like, stay at, stay at your desk until I can change your arrangements. Change my arrangements. She calls me, six o'clock, go home, rest. You, you know, you're leaving in the morning, uh, you're going to LA. So the next morning, on Tuesday, September 11, 2001, I got on a plane, a United Airlines flight. No, I think I, uh, no, I think I was on a United flight because they uh, were flying out of LaGuardia with midair, where somewhere over mid country, because we land in Kansas, they tell us there's been a, a, a terroristic threat against American Airlines. And we think, I'm thinking, oh, they mean American. Airlines, America, the, you know, the, the, the airline, the company. And then we realize that they're talking about all domestic flights when they put us down and the cars are parking like, I mean, the planes are parking like cars on a parking lot, like get down anywhere, get the people off the plane and then um, uh, get into the, the, into the, into the uh, terminal. And thankfully, one of my friends who used to work at BET, Rob Sellers, who's doing stage management on all your favorite award shows and stuff, his team had been, he and his team from CBS had just done the Michael Jackson 30 year uh, concert, a huge one um, at Madison Square Garden. The team was on my plane and they apparently were getting an SUV to drive from Kansas City to LA. It would take us a couple of days, but that's what they did. And Rob found me in the airport. Um, but before that, before he found me, my mom called and it was like, the, you know, two calls got through Penny who freaked out because my name is on the manifest from Newark. That's the plane they hit Tower 2. 18 days apart, a plane I was supposed to be on is gone. But I'm not on the plane because she put me out, 
took me out of LaGuardia. So Penny freaked out. She's like, I can't send you where they host. I'm like, well, why not? I'm okay. And then my mother called and said, let's pray. And I fell to my knees in the middle of the terminal. And I promise you, about 50, 75 people went to their knees with me. With me. They ain't know. And I was like, yes, ma'am, let's go. I put my mother on speaker. She prayed. I got up. And as I was getting up, Rob Sellers was like, hey, yeah, we're driving to LA. You want to come? You got one seat left. You want to come? Come with us. And that journey, and you asked about like how it got me to pastor. I'm already pastor. The journey was hearing God tell me it was time to leave BET. Like it was time to stop doing this job, you know, as a daily thing because God needed more. And I couldn't know what I didn't know what to do with it. I was like, what am I do Monday through Friday? What am I do for Monday? What am I do? I came up here for BET and driving through the Rocky Mountains. You know, everybody had gone to sleep, and I'm doing the driving at like sunrise. So it's me literally having to drive like this, bro. Whew. And then tears flowing, snot flowing, and the sun coming up. And God goes, you're going to figure this out, but I need you. And that became what really started to happen after I got back after 9-11. Conversations started to happen at work, with co-workers, at work, with celebrities, at work, with people going, oh, my God, I heard about, but I, I knew about Aaliyah. Who was the dude that was on the plane on 9-11? That was also me. Uh-uh. Let's pray. Like, you know, I remember going to Maxwell's dressing room and we went into prayer. I was like, yeah, it's probably getting ready to step back from the industry for a while. I know that would be almost a decade, but it was more everywhere. I was in file, file rooms and edit suites and in elevators with label execs and people were like, there's some sort of calling on your life, bro. So, uh, listen, uh, just pray with me, you know? And so, for, you know, that was September, October, November, December, January, and then it just started to get louder and louder. One day I went to the to, to, the, to take my check, to put it in my bank three blocks away. And I looked at it kind of like, ah, okay. And the scripture, what profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul. Just scrolled across the check, not the amount. And I was like, oh God. And God was like, yep, it's time to go. And then I was like, I didn't understand. It. I didn't understand. It. I didn't understand it. And the way God got me to hear, if God said, what else do you need? What you, son, I've given you Natalie Cole. I've given you shows and formats and awards and plaques, you know, look at that. I got, I'll give you plaques and you think that you should see this wall. You know what I mean? The Natalie Cole wall is over with Natalie. The Natalie Cole wall is over there. You've gotten everything you can imagine, personal letters and photos. And, you know, look at that. That's me and uh, Anita Vega. That's me and Tina. So I said, what else do you do? What else do you need? And I was like, uh-uh, I need you. And I was like, oh, And I went to talk to Penny McDonald about it. And she was like, Kevin, you get ready to move to the, you know, to the CBS building. And I was hoping you could help to kind of, you know, with the move. And I was like, okay, I'll just stay till the move. I go, stay till the move. I'm saying to myself. And then I go to talk to her the next morning. And while we are in the, nope, she said, I need you to stay till the move is over. Then while we're in her office talking, Stephen Hill comes on the intercom and says, I know there's been talk about us moving to, from, from you know, here at 106 and Park uh, to the CBS building that move is not going to happen. So she was saying, wait until the move happens. The move ain't gonna happen. So she's like, that's the sign you asked for. So I have to let you go. I have to let you go because you've asked to leave and I'm trying to give you a point where you leave and that point ain't happening. So, okay. She said, you asked God for a sign, that's it. I'm not gonna block it. So I hugged her and while we were hugging, Stephen Hill came back on and said, okay, the move is back on. She said, that was just a gap to let you in, to let you out. And so it, I literally went from, you know, everyday producer at BET at 106 and Park, you know, living at 110th and 3rd to sitting at home like, okay, Lord, so how do I run a church 
you know, in central New Jersey from, you know, from Spanish Harlem. I tried to do that for a year and then ended up moving into Newark because Newark was a, a solid central space because I could hop on the PATH train uh, back into the city. I could hop on the, uh, uh, the New Jersey transit down to New Brunswick to the church and I could hop on the Amtrak and get back to BET and, you know, in DC where my family was. So then I, you know, I, I'm trying to do all that for a year. Then I moved down to New Brunswick where I pastored for 12 years. And then, you know, we, uh, we ended up bringing the New Jersey churches together. And so I've been back in, in, in Newark since 2012. Wow. Your, your, yeah. test, your testimony, man. Yeah. But God, I'm just gonna say but that, God. But, but God. Brother, brother, when I tell you, King, when I tell you, you know, the, what, what, the overwhelmingness of the look on people's face when they, hey, weren't you? Uh, Brian Gumbel, renowned uh, journalist, and I had met at, we met when he interviewed me on his show for, after the Aaliyah tragedy. I saw him again at a party after 9-11. He goes, how you doing, man? And I was like, so I was on flight, you know, United flight, such and such and such and such on September 11th. He was like, what the, he was like, man, man, what are you supposed to be doing? Because something's trying to tell you something. So it became that with everybody it was kind of like, bruh, something on you this, ah, I don't know what this is ah. and so you know I ended up quitting you know God was like I need you to step back I need you to step back I need you so being in Newark gave me enough central you know I would go down to DC to do projects I was still you know sent out. I got called in to do a, a telephone you know so they were like we still need you and God was like I just need to free you up to, to change to change lanes yeah. mm -hmm. God's trying to tell you something. Like in the culture, God's trying to tell you something. And sometimes God can use situations or people to get you to that ultimate purpose, to that ultimate step, you know? And again, the fact that, you know, because, you know, it, it got hard because my nephew said it one point. He said, oh my God, Uncle Kevin, it's like the final destination, you know? He's like, well, I want y'all to be clear that God didn't kill all those people on that plane and take this plane down just to get my attention. God already had my attention. Like God was the one who said, believe, agree with her and get on another flight. Don't ride in your ego. You know, listen to Penny when Penny says, Yeah, you can't be flying out of Newark. That's just too far for you living out. You'd be an hour, you know, on the wrong time in the morning, it would be three hours getting out of New York City. So it was, you know, it wasn't like God was plucking down people and buildings to get my attention. It was but it was when God said, what else do you require? I remember, bro, it was the simplest moment. Brandy walked on to the set of 106 and Park. Well, not on the set. She walked into 106 and Park with her baby on her hip. And I had met her, I had met Brandy at 12 years old. You like my album? You know, talking to my boss's office while her mom and my boss were talking. And, um, you know, she came around the corner, baby, and she went, Uncle Kevin. I was like, yep, time to go, right? I didn't, I don't want to be long enough to be uncle to the celebrities. You know what I mean? That, 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 that. And so when God said, asked me, what else do you desire? I was like, you know, I was like, who else do you want to interview? I mean, I'll interview whoever you ask, Lord, but you gave me Natalie first. I have no list. I have no more list. You gave me Natalie Cole first. You gave me Natalie Cole seeing me at a party and telling me, I want you to know I signed a book deal and I'm going to need you. Natalie Cole calling me almost all of uh, all of 98 and half of 99 
uh, you know, uh, yeah. So uh, fact check it. So did I get arrested in August or September that year? Natalie got arrested in February. You got arrested on your birthday. How come you know? Okay, I promise I wouldn't ask you. She's like, oh my God, you know everything. I was like, I know everything about Natalie Cole. I don't know everything. I know everything about Natalie Cole. Though. And so there was, you know, when God asked that, I looked at my list and even in my wildest dreams, bro, Natalie Cole would have been at the top of a list that God created this way. God created the list this way. So you get to meet Tina Turner, you know, be at Patty LaBelle's house for your interview and she does a full sport. You get to meet Luther at a, you know, it's a Sony club and he goes, those shoes are fabulous. You want to trade? And I was like, your shoes don't match my outfit. I could have had Luther's shoes, but he, our, you know, outfits didn't match. And I was like, the moments where celebrity, you know, I'm walking over by United Nations and a, 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 a kind of like, you know, Escalade limo rides in front of me. And my friend Derek Rutledge, who is makeup artist to Michelle Obama, and now singularly to Oprah Winfrey on her TV shows, movies, specials. You know, Derek goes, hey, Kevin. And then the back window rolls on this patty the bell. She goes, hey, sweetie, I told you that was him. I'm saying, okay, wait a minute. I'm walking down the street, a limo sees a dude on the corner. And inside, Patty LaBelle says, oh, that's Kevin. And my friend has to go, you're right. But Patty saw me first. I was like, what else wrong? And I had no answer, bro. I had no answer. I had no singular answer to, because I still can't explain. When people go, well, how come is it? So literally, TLC, Tony Braxton, Aaliyah, Scarface, Vanessa Williams, Dave Cos, Maxwell, uh, K7, Mariah Carey, Wyclef Jean, uh, another Maxwell, for, one for Embryo, one for Urban Hang Suite, Barry White, Jaheem, Anita Baker, Crystal Wood. What are these doing in my house? Because the Natalie Cole one is over there on the Natalie Cole one. I was like, I was like, so what is it you need? What else, what else do you need? So if you won't, if you can't move on until I give you this other thing, what else do you need? I was like, oh, okay, okay. So what was it like for you when BT had that anniversary gathering after Thanksgiving, the 40th anniversary with all of the alums and just hearing the stories and everybody reconnecting and celebrating BET's legacy. Shout so a lot of people, Miller. a lot of people don't know, but Montez Miller is a type. Montez Miller and Curtis Simons, you know, bit down on this thing and it just kept growing and growing and growing. But Curtis came up with it first. Curtis Simons, affiliate marketing uh, senior vice president, just wanted us to get together. So we had done this we have done this twice in person. We had done it two years ago and then two years before that. And so we had some of those moments. Um, what where the virtual uh, opportunity uh, expanded it is that people who couldn't get on a plane for two days and fly to DC were now able to do it from across the globe, right? We had Mary Lou Badeau, who was one of our uh, uh, Warner Brothers people who lived, who got us printed to, uh, you know, I'll be sure. she was always dropping people to it and making sure they knew the importance of BET and she's in Australia now. She was able to be there. So her, you know, to see the virtual uh, uh, reunion also let us see the virtual impact of us, right? To see that, you know, oh, well, there's Big Les and there's Deja and there's Fred and there's Ananda who had just, you know, Ananda pertinent because she's talking about her cancer fight and she's everywhere, but she stops to come to the BET reunion, right? So people stop, people stop their worlds to come into this space and say, I was a part of this. I was a part of this. I'm a part of history. I'm, I'm a part of the culture. 
in very real ways. That man, there was no explaining how soul soothing that was. You know what I mean? It, it, again, that that in the midst of all that's going on, that all of us get to get together. Then at times we broke out into separate breakout rooms based on shows and just acting a fool, you know, and you know people who aren't on the screen you that you can't see but are texting you like i see you swipe over the page for you can't see me you know what i mean and then you go into a separate you know facetime you know what i mean and so you're supposed to be on here but you're doing it you know so you go off camera so you can have a separate conversation and so that's dropping in but people don't realize that some of us have dated them and some of us have hang, hung out with them like yeah when you come to town you stand at my house people don't understand that that's how rich the culture is right that there are people who come to town and go, you know, I remember um, even Marcel was in, uh, uh, was at uh, Black Girls Rock and she was like, we had you know, met at, a, you know, at a, a, a cultural fest. And she was like, are you in New York or New Jersey? I said, I'm in Newark. Oh my God, I'm at NJ Black, come get me. You know what I mean? It was the, that, that's the kind of love relationship that we have with folk. And again, there are people who dated inside BET and married inside BET and had family inside, you know, there were people who, 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 you know, had a romantic engagements with people who they connected with, who were celebrated, you know, people, you know, and, and there's a connection to BET that is eternal, you know, that none of this, you know, the question, you know, that Montez had all of us answer that my, you know, my response ended up being kind of the, profile piece of, you know, where would I be without BET? This is like, like, where would I be? Like, what would my whole life configuration have been as a budget analyst from DC working for the government, not walked into BET and worked for Lydia and Natalie Cole and then became a, then said Diva Week and then became a researcher and then got the opportunity to produce. And people who had said, who is he? Why is he getting this opportunity? And the Natalie Cole interview goes, comes on, they go, yo, so if you need help with your next one, I'm in. I was like, wait, what? Wait, how, how? oh, are you telling me it was good? Are you telling me, you telling me you liked it? Because you don't want to say it. So they just kind of like, yeah, you need me next time, I'm in. But there are celebrities who can see you in a crowd and go, hey, you be easy. That you, you talked about, you know, that uh, early at the beginning of this interview, you talked about uh, having gotten your BET uh, official merchandise. Man, imagine 20th anniversary where we get boxes that each have like BET leather jackets in them, or 15th anniversary, we get a varsity jacket, and you think, oh my God, I work for BET, oh my God. And so you put that on because you're flying to some town and you want to have your BET jacket on just to feel cool. And like, the hotel upgrades you because you work for BET, or, or, or you know, you go into a restaurant and they, you know, can you give me Donnie Simpson's autograph? Yes, ma'am, I sure can. Just give me the chair. Oh my God, your dinner's on me. As long as you stand in this city, just come by here, you'll eat. Wait, because I can go. Okay, okay, okay. I'm telling you, I've been in cities and had my hotel room upgraded. All because of BET. And that jacket was so popular, Evander Holyfield even wore it on Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Evander Holyfield wore it on Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. That's how much this means to the culture. That's how much BET is the culture. That's how much BET is. Yes. 106 Apart, Teen Summit, uh, 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 you know, YSP Magazine, Emerge Magazine, Ed Gordon, uh, Melvin Lindsay, Donnie Simpson. 
Then he also, Planet Groove introduced the world to uh, uh, Erica Badu and Rasan Patterson and Max Maxwell. That th there are so many black artists today that some human being like you and me can look at it and go, we did that. Right. Like I go to a Maxwell concert and you know, and 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 and, and, and seated front row, and he don't shake anybody's hand but Bond. He's like, right. Hey. Hey, but Maxwell was also the first person I heard from when Natalie died. Hey, Kevin, sorry to hear about Natalie. I know how much she meant to you. I was like, how do you know how much she meant to me? Oh, because we talk, like we talk, talk. Like, you know, we could have conversations that people knew about your mother. Diana Ross came to uh, the video soul for that for that Diva week. She was the first one. And one of the young ladies came into the dressing room, to the green room to tell her that her mother had worked at Motown. She asked who her mother was, and she told her, she went, oh my God, that's your mother. How is she? And she told her how she was. She said, she talks about you all the time. She said, could you get her on the phone? And so she dials her mother's number. Hi, so and so, this is Diane. It's Diane, this is Diane, because Diane also calls herself Diane. Something. So she's Diane, she's like, oh my God, where are you? She's like, I'm sitting here with your daughter. And she, and she talked to the girl's mama like they were, in, you know, young girls at Motown, you know, we, we bees the culture. Right, and I'm proud of that in ways I cannot even explain until somebody has to tell the story of how Maxwell. You know, it's like people look at Maxwell now. This is my favorite, my personal story. Like, I'm sitting at my desk, just listening to me, listening to me. No, I'm sitting at my desk typing, and I hear this music going through the air, and I was like, "What is that?" And so Michael Joyner is a producer for Screen Scene has been sent this CD because they're trying to get, if we could get this, a little feature on them for the screen, for screen scene, we'd appreciate it. And I was like, can I, he's like, well, you wanna listen to it? I listen to it. And I'm telling you, I'm getting drunk on this album. Urban Haynes Suite is just a perfect album from beginning to end. And I get to whenever, wherever, whatever, and start to wail. I was like, what? And if there's a thing that you need for you and your blood, I will bleed. And I call Michelle Welch Fuente, Michelle Fuentes, um, at Columbia, and I was like, so I'm listening to this Maxwell album. She's like, do you love it? I was like, can I get a copy? And then I was like, wait, she said, no, she said, do you want a copy? And I was like, oh my God, yes. And then she says, but, um, how did you get it? And I was like, Mike Joyner is listening to it because they just couldn't get any traction on him. And then I was like, you know, is there any visual, you know, because people forget. So people think that BET and me especially fell in love with Maxwell because he's fine and well-dressed and so that must be why you put them on. This album that we got, you know, often those demos aren't the album cover. It was a gold shoe on a carpet. I had no idea what he was. But whenever, wherever, whatever. And then Lonely's the only company. Between those two songs, I was like, who is this? And so I give it back to Mike. And she sends the video and I'm trying to uh, play it in a video review meeting. We're like, yeah, we're gonna play it, we're gonna support it. And then we realized, you know, I talked about boss. I was like, I would stake my career on this dude. There is something special about it. And so we had a short-lived show on BET called Flavor In Your Ear that Brett Walker hosted. It was this kind of one-on-one -on -one profile. And people, you know, again, so Maxwell comes, they bring Maxwell in to do the interview and he comes looking for me because I get the interview schedule and I was off on a shoot. So we didn't even get to meet them. And so then Ascension Don't Have a Wonder happens and he blows up and he comes to take the entire music department to lunch. And that's when we meet and he's standing in front of me and he's like, bro, why? I mean, 
like I was doing college tours and they would, they just couldn't get, you know, cause that Neo soul sound, you know, I was 96, it was him and Erica and Erica's at least had a little bit of hip hop to it. His was like classic sweeping soul and they didn't know what to do with him. And then Ascension's got enough of the, ah, 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 boom, boom, boom. And they were like, yeah, this is what we can work with. And so, cause the first single was, uh, till the cops come knocking, that was just a whole nother sound. And so he, we had uh, this lunch and he's looking at me like, why, why, like, what was it? And I was like, you know, he's like, why did you believe in this? I don't like this. I said, and if there's a thing that you need for you and your blood, I will bleed. And if ever you yearn for the love in me, whenever, wherever, whatever. I was like, who says that? That's an that's a soul incision. You can't just walk by that and act like you didn't hear it. He's like, but so many people did. And I was like, that's because they weren't listening. And so Maxwell and I like became intimately close because of like, you know, get on the phone and he'd be sending Christmas because like you realize like fighting for somebody got them a career that could have that could have gone and flown anyway, but that because we decided we were playing Maxwell in the top 20 when he wasn't even in the top 70 on the charts. There are artists who radio does, does doesn't get to take credit for. BET does. Believe right. in them, we play the song and then radio was like, yeah, get us that. There, there were times and other ways that it happened. But in the, you know, Maxwell, Erica Badu, Rasan Pettis, we, they came to us for TLC. TLC sent us Ain't Too Proud to Beg, Ain't Too Proud to Beg in October of the year it came out. And then they had to bring TLC to BET to bum rush our video review meeting to say, stop playing our record, stop it. We're not, the album not ready. And y'all took this song to number one faster than we thought. And now radio's begging for an album. The album ain't finished. So we had to pull a video back to medium rotation from heavy because we were outpacing the record label as it related to support. They were like, there's no way we could go in here and ask them to stop doing something people begged them to do, but maybe the artists can convince them. Wow. So we were like, okay. Right. And for some of you that do not know, BT had a hand in the career of New Kids on the Block, and I'm going to explain to you how. They originally did a video for Please Don't Go Girl, which Maurice Starr paid for out of pocket. Jamie Foster Brown of Sister to Sister Magazine and Maurice Starr knew of each other. Maurice is like, hey, I got this new group. They're like new edition. I got this video and I'm having trouble. So the video gets played on BET. New Kids Marketing is an associate, is an assistant producer, is associate producer at, at, at BET. Mm -hmm. So the video gets played on BET. New kids on the block getting traction on the R&B side of things. But once Pop got a hold of them, everything changed. But BET pretty much had a hand in helping one of the biggest boy bands in the world. And, uh, so and, it, and, it did an episode, and it did an episode of Video LP with Sherry Carter. There are, people don't realize that the impact of BET is so huge that uh, uh, New Kids on the Block, Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, uh, uh, all, all of them, almost none of those white groups, even Britney with, uh, with a couple of his, they did not get traction until they stopped by Blackville. They just, they, they, it took them to a whole nother level when they realized we were paying attention to ah, almost wanted to grab them from us before we made them stars. You know what I mean? So they're like, oh, give us back, give us up, up, up. That's ours. Mm -hmm. And we know how that goes. And I want to talk about this one BET personality that also had a big influence on me, in addition to Donnie Simpson and the list of us goes on and on. Uh, Terrence J. 
the reason why I say Terrence J is because he's from Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, which is about 45 minutes from where I grew up in Gaston, North Carolina. And when he got on BET and he said, man, this guy grew up 45, 50 minutes down 95 from me. And he's doing everything that he's doing on BET and to see where he is now acting, being an entrepreneur. It just gave me from Gaston, North Carolina, the ability to dream and say, hey, if he can do it, I can do it too. I mean, I, and I understand that because uh, I graduated from Woodrow Wilson High School in D.C. in 1983, uh, I believe, if I'm, not, if I'm not mistaken. Melvin Lindsay graduated there from 1973. And so, you know, 83 was also the year I graduated. And uh, because he was celebrating his, uh, his, his, his homecoming, his, uh, we were celebrating homecoming, and it was his kind of 10th year reunion, there was a moment where they did a, um, they did a pep rally and we didn't know who this, who was coming, you know. It was just one of those big, uh, you know, homecoming pep rallies. And then Melvin Lindsay came, and then Melvin Lindsay brought Donnie Simpson with him. Our high school almost blew up, you know, with all of the. And I was like, oh my God, Melvin Lindsay went here. He walked these halls. He, you know, he 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 had this teacher. He could have sat in this seat, and it just made me, like you, just dream, of, you know, of 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 possibility because things have happened for me that I couldn't even have imagined dreaming, right? And again, Bogato started at the Natalie Cole, but like be, being able to be, so here's what, <laughs> Melvin Lizzie was going to the campus and we knew that, some of us knew it, because I was on the, you know, and senior, my senior year, on, you know, yearbook committee, homecoming committee. And so they were like, and so, and so Donnie's coming and then Melvin's coming. I was like, y'all can get anybody you want to escort Donnie Simpson. I love him, but I know they're all gonna fight. I'm escorting Melvin Lizzie. I don't care what nobody says. I, I, I take his hand, I got a different, but I'm walking him in because Melvin got daggone Lindsay. You know, Melvin Lindsay, who died on his favorite singer, Diana Ross's birthday during a quiet storm. Literally, it was softly rained that day when we got the news that Melvin had died. And all of us were like, Melvin, are you kidding? Like, it's, it's not raining loud. It was, you know what I mean? It was a quiet storm on Diana Ross's birthday when Melvin Lindsay died. Wow. Right, and so just, I mean, that, that WHUR and BET are in my hometown and I got to in any way be connected to them and you know, my HUR connection is just as a listener and then to be able to meet Melvin Lindsay, to know Donnie Simpson and that's, you know, for Donnie Simpson to be able to know me in a crowd, that's not you Donnie Simpson, you Donnie Simpson. Right. So, you know, and Donnie doesn't know, hey, he'll be like, hey, Kevin, hey Montez, Hey, Darrell, you know what I mean? He knows you. He knows you like family. And it just, it can still blow your mind because at first sight, you know, literally brown skin, green eyed Donnie, he sparkles. You're like, that's Donnie Simpson. Oh, he's speaking to me. Let me come back. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's a huge thing. And it never gets old. It right. never gets old. Right. Because when I went over the dialogue for the top 20 countdown, like this brought to you by Coca-Cola Classic Video Soul Top 20, like, man, you do know it, don't you? I was like, he's complimenting me on knowing my stuff and I was like just humbled that first off I hardly had any interviews to my name that he would agree to do the interview in the first place but still the fact that hey this young man knows his stuff and that leads me to say I'm humbled by you taking the time out of your day to do this interview with me and do you have any shout outs you want to give before we wrap and also plug your social media so you drop names, you know, just, just shout out to the whole BET family. I love, you know, I love Montez Miller calling, you know, the queen of the world. She knows everybody and everybody knows her. 
you know, all of the talent that's ever, you know, blessed BET stages. The, the fact that, uh, the fact that people know me, you know, that, that BET isn't just, you know, black star power, but people know people who've done the work and engage us and know my name and credits, they've been following our careers. It's just a beautiful thing. So to anybody who ever, you know, said, hey, my God, I loved you. Or Access Graduate was my favorite show. I still have episodes. I still remember the first time that I went on the YouTube and put in lyrically speaking. And one of my shows that I did not post came up. And I was like, how was this stuff on the internet? You know, it's just mind blowing. So to all of the BET family, that the family that worked at BET and the family that continued to support us through the years, just thank you. Just thank you. Just thank you. If you got old stuff, just post it because we love it. I, I love what it feels like to walk down memory lane. Um, I'm at Kevin E. Taylor on most social media. Uh, the old, uh, at Kevin E. Taylor on Instagram, you can find me there on Facebook, uh, on TikTok. Um, but the only one that has any variance to it is Kevin E. Taylor TM3 because it was already Kevin E. Taylor on Twitter. But if you if you put in Kevin E. Taylor, I'm the black. So you know, just connect. I, you know, people people think um, just like you did. You people think that making a request to come on podcast, come on. Uh, shows that do these interviews. It's like, I know you're busy. I'm never too busy to continue the legacy of the culture. So if talking about it keeps the conversation about it, I'm so blessed that there are, you know, young people that are people in the in, in the world who, who could be doing this easy entertainment stuff, want to unpack BE stuff, BET and history that want to ask about details. Because sometimes, you know, without you all being disintrigued about it, some of these stories could, drop, could die on the vine because you know people know the kind of topical stuff, and then you ask another layer, another surface or two under it, and get to get you know and get to sparking some real kind of you know reminisce like yeah I remember the first time I met Mary J. Blige and she cussed on the set of the yeah and she, yeah and then they had to bring uh, Andre Harrell to sit beside her for her next interview and we had a fight because she was real gruff and was real rough on me. And then the next time, you know, she was at the network and my life came out, you know, she was a whole new artist who had created a masterpiece. And so I ran down with People Magazine and read the review. And she's like, I recognize your voice. I was like, no, let me keep talking. She's like, no, for real. And she's like, we fought last time I was here. I was like, but girl, we just listened to this interview. I mean, this review is a masterpiece. And, you know, and that years later, you could have, you know, a celebrity nudge you on the street and be like, remember that time? Be like, you remember? I you remember? And, you know, so I'm so, I'm so blessed, bro, that you chronicle moments like this because this is the stuff, right? Some of those BT things are not going to get on YouTube. If I have my way, all of mine will get there so that your son, your children can go dead. So this dude did what? So who is this person he's talking about? He, right? See, Stevie Wonder, what, how did he know Stevie? You know, my own son would be like, dad. How come, you know, first of all, you know, I adopted uh, a 13 year old, now 31, right? My son has his own son. And when I took my son to his first concert, it was Natalie Cole. And he was like, who are you, Mr. Like, you know, he's still in this moment. Like, you're my dad, you're my pastor, but he's like, you're a superhero because everybody knows you. But I'm like, we're in New Brunswick, you know, I'm a big black dude. A bunch of people know me. Everybody doesn't know me. Then I take him to see Natalie Cole and you know, as she's finishing the show, she's thinking, I love it. She goes, I've got some friends in the audience tonight. Turn the lights up. Kevin, where are you? And 
He's like, see, you know everybody. I was like, I swear, I've seen Natalie in concert a hundred times. She's never done this, right? Or to have the Patti LaBelle pullover or just a moment where somebody is singing and they point at you, you're like, ah, you know? These moments were birthed out of being family. And the fact that you are documenting this and, and digging deeper, you know, beyond the album cover, all my Natalie Cole albums are there, like literally one of these shows, they sit because I got the CDs, I got the iron, because it all matters. And so I love that that's the name of your, of your podcast because this is the stuff that got me into BET, right? When I would, it's nice to be meeting in Vogue, but it's like, oh my God, Sylvia Rowan is coming with them. I remember the first Billboard magazine I read, an article on her, she's coming, you know what I mean? And I was like, oh my God, it's Ron, I love you, I love you, I love you. And she's like, what are you talking about, <laughs> right? Now, you're a fan of me. I was like, yeah, you're the first black woman, the first woman, but you know, so it just opened doors. And so to go from that fanned out moment to being in New York and to still be rolling calling me, where are you? I'm at the Drake. I'm coming to get you. I'm taking you to this party. I'm like, why? You know, because there's moments I still marvel in and I'm so grateful for. And brother man, this will be one of them. I appreciate it wholeheartedly. You can catch this interview on all streaming platforms, Anchor, Apple, Spotify, TuneIn, wherever you stream, in the video version on YouTube at my channel, youtube.com slash beyond the album cover, BT and Amazon. Please give us fans a repurposed version of that varsity jacket if they're in the Holyfield War on Fresh Prince. I want one of those <laughs> so I can wear it with some Air Forces try not to get jacked for it like the start of Georgetown or Carolina or Charlotte Hornets jacket back in the day. Ladies and gentlemen. I think after they these t-shirts and doing well. Yeah. I bet your jacket will be coming by fall. Yes. Put me on the list for the jacket. I already got my BET hoodie. Ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only Mr. Jack of all trades, Kevin E. Taylor. Mr. Taylor, thank you for coming on to Beyond the Album Cover. It's my pleasure, King. Be blessed, be well. Yes, sir.